Welcome, you are listening to the Overseas Life Redesign Podcast, where you'll hear fun, relaxed, and inspirational interviews with people who are really living the dream. I'm Dawn Fleming, an attorney turned alchemist, and your host for the show, coming to you from the tropical island paradise of Isla Mujeres, Mexico. Listen to conversations with courageous souls who've stepped out of their comfort zone and designed a new way of life. They'll share their experiences, wisdom, and offer practical steps you can take to redesign your life overseas. Listen, and you'll believe if you can dream it, you can achieve it. Today, I am here with Sam Thiara, and he is, uh, his position is a chief motivating officer, so I'll be interested to hear more about that. But uh, living in Vancouver, Canada, has written a couple of books and is a teacher at Sam Fraser University. Really interesting background. And thank you so much, Sam, for taking the time to speak with me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, Don, thank you. I look forward to being able to share stories and insights and uh, hopefully engaging your listeners. Excellent. Well, as you know, um, the, the podcast is Overseas Life Redesign, and we you know, really kind of talk about people who are living the dream. And um, it's... Uh, there's obviously the overseas element to it. I know you've um, uh, lived in different places, but why don't you just start off with uh, tell us a little bit about who you are? Sure. I think the easiest way for me to describe who I am is I'm guided by five core elements, servant leadership, story sharing, activator igniter, champion enabler, and community do-gooder. Those five components have enabled me to help individuals teams, organizations, educational institutions, and nonprofits to their pinnacle best. But by focusing on who I am and not what I do, it's also enabled me to become a speaker, storyteller, author and a writer, a mentor and coach, an educator, entrepreneur, problem solver, and a community activator. So it really enabled me to pursue what's really important in my life, and that has led me to where I am today. Well, and that's so important. I mean, all the the teachings that I've done, the research Mm -hmm. I've done, it all talks about having purpose and meaning Mm -hmm. in your life and that, you know, the material stuff just doesn't do it. So um, that's wonderful. So I I know we talked before the interview, your your first book, uh, Lost. Mm -hmm. Uh, Lost and Found, Seeking seeking the Past and Finding Myself. Yes. Tell me a little bit about we your uh, journey in, in discovering your past. and uh, yeah. So I was born in England, raised in Canada, and my parents come from Fiji Islands, which is near Australia, and my grandparents are from India. So visibly, if you look at me, I look Indian. And all too often, you would get people coming up saying, what part of India are you from? I said, well, I was born in England and raised in Canada. And they look at me and go, no, 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 your parents, what part of India? Like, well, my parents come from Fiji Islands. And they're like, wait, are you Indian? It's like, well, my grandparents come from India. And then the reverse of that is they'll say, well, you're not Indian, you're Canadian. And I'm like, okay. Or the other one, which I get, which always makes me sort of wonder is, no, no, really, where are you from? And I'm like, okay, planet Earth, let's start there. Okay, that's where I'm from. So I struggled with this identity piece because of this separation from my ancestral roots and who I am. And I guess what really mattered to me then was this aspect of I was missing something in life. And it was my Indian identity, my Indian cultural background. 
So I guess what was important for me was to seek out my ancestral roots because nobody in my family really knew where in India my grandfather had lived, left his house. But it was also about trying to understand more of my Indian identity. So I decided, you know, probably in, it, it was 2004, I wanted to go to India for the very first time. So I left uh, Vancouver, headed off with my wife to India for a you know, three-week journey. And part of it was all I had was a faded photograph, which is like a three-by-three three faded photograph, very little information. And the picture basically has some people standing in front of a house. But that's all I had to go by, except for we knew the name of the village as Chadori. It's about six miles from a town called Garshankar. And it's in the district of Hushyarpur. But everybody we talked to here in Vancouver or in England, whenever I'd visit my aunt, they knew, you know, the district. They knew the town of Garshankar, but they said, no, I've never heard of uh, this town, uh, this village called Chadori. I think you're wrong. So the more I sought to find it, the more difficult the search was because either there was a lot of noise. Either people were like, you'll never find it. Why are you looking? You won't have a good reception. So part of it was the journey to find my ancestral roots, but the other part was to find my own identity, my Indianness. <clears throat> and it was interesting because I was a foreigner going to a land that shouldn't be foreign to me in search of a needle in a haystack, except not knowing where the haystack was. So it's pretty crazy that, you know, you, you sort of go on this journey. And I remember there were setbacks along the way. And I wrote, wrote in my journal, you know, this whole idea of anticipation and then setbacks, anticipation, setbacks. And I never thought I would ever find this village with just this photograph. And it, you know, became almost like this dream. But I did reclaim my identity. I had a euphoric moment an epiphany when I was in uh, Punjab, <clears throat> woke up at 4 a.m. This realization is that, you know, my life was always a tali. And a tali in India is a platter with segmented dishes. So here I am, British, Canadian, Fijian, Indian. And for 11 years, I played in an Irish military pipe band. So maybe there's a bit of Irish chutney in there as well. Oh, my goodness. So, <clears throat> so I'm separated by all these identities. But my realization was at 4 a.m. that day, my identity is this rice dish in India called kichri, a rice dish which is a blend of flavors. I was always segmenting my life into these various ethnicities or cultural backgrounds when, in fact, I could be all of them at the same time. So I think that's how I reclaimed it. And that's why lost and found, seeking the past and finding myself, I found my identity. And I went to India in search of my Indian identity or, you know, being Indian. Don't, my realization was I was always Indian. I didn't need to go to India, but I did realize it. And uh, it, it clarified it for me. The journey to find my grandfather's house, though, very difficult. And I still recall, you know, the setbacks. But then I just remember saying, I just want to get back to the basics. Let's drive to Garshankar. Let's go to this town. And sure enough, people were like, never heard of the village or, you know, why are you searching? But this one person said, you're Chadori, right? And we said, yeah. He said, it's six miles up the road this way. 
But think of it this way. You've already endured setbacks. I was very guarded. So we're driving. And I remember writing in my journal, here we go again. We get to this archway. There's an old man seated there. And this old man just staring at the ground, you know, we show him the picture. And I mean, you can't even really make out the people in the picture. Mm-hmm. And he looks at it. He says, well, I don't know about the people in the front, but there's a gentleman in the back. He looks like so-and-so. He gets into our car, which was very common with all the other times we tried this. And we drove to a house. And as we're driving to this house, we stop there. He gets out. They take the picture with them. And they walk up. And then these people come out of the house. And they look at this picture. And this woman, she's there. She looks at it. And she goes, that's me in the picture. Who are you? And all of a sudden, I was, I was like, wait, did I hear this right? And she was like, yeah, that's me. Who are you? And it turned out it was my grandfather's older brother's family we had now encountered and the house that my grandfather left when he was 18 years old. And I was able to reclaim that past. That's why it's lost and found, seeking the past and finding myself. I know it's a spoiler alert for anybody who may want to read the book. But the important thing here is it's really that journey that's really important in this whole book. I mean, yes. And when she said the words, eventually after she knew who we were, your home, all of a sudden this connection to this place just hit my core going like, okay, I am home. Yeah. Wow. So that's, that's the book. Wow. That's amazing. Well, everybody loves happy endings. So that's okay. <laughs> if I know a book has a happy ending, I'm going to be more likely to read it. So I love it. Yeah. Um, Wow. So would you say you talked mm-hmm. about the the compartmentalization of the foods and, and yeah. getting them mixed together? Was was that the the, the salad tongs? <laughs> yeah, you <laughs> could say. Really? Or or if you make an omelet, it's the blending of everything together. You know, you go to your fridge and whatever's there left over, you're like, okay, I'm throwing it in there, putting it on the top of a pizza. Um, I think a lot of people struggle with that aspect of identity. And, you know, it doesn't matter where you're from or or your but we all come from somewhere and or we have this ancestral roots part and i've had conversations with people who said you know it's great that you found your ancestral roots but you know i won't find mine and but i said you know i was talking to on numerous occasions and one person in particular was from sicily for example he said sam i mean my ancestral roots go to sicily but we don't know anything about it we don't know the town the house the village nothing uh, when he went there and i said but when you went to sicily when you were there did did something just connect with you there because this is where your ancestors are from he said yeah that happened i said well you were home yeah and that's this whole piece like you don't have to find the house or the village or the town. Just the fact that you're in a place that is part of you is connectedness enough. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's really um, Mm -hmm. inspirational. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. What was it like? uh, I mean, talking to these relatives, did you get all, did you get the stories and, Mm -hmm. and get, get uh, that, that uh, gift of, of context? Yes. Uh, It's always, I always tell people, The time we want to start this sort of soul searching or ancestral search is much later in life. 
and the narratives of that uh, oral history starts disappearing and evaporating. Start earlier. Because there was a lot of gaps in the story. And then they, in the village, filled in some of the gaps, but there was parts missing. I mean, for example, I mean, I'd be talking to my my father, my my uncles or people. How did our grandfather wind up in Fiji? I mean, of all places. For, I mean, he, he as a 17-year-old, he left India at a landlocked part of the world, hopped on a steamer ship and ventured out. We found out he was on his way to Argentina for cattle ranching. Okay. How did you make it to Fiji? Well, there's three ideas or thoughts or theories about this. Number one, coming from a landlocked country, maybe he had enough of sea life and said, that's it. Because when you're in a, in, you're not first class, you're steerage. Sure. So you know what? Maybe he said, that's it. I'm seasick. I've done it. I've done, uh, this is it. I'm done. Second part, maybe, you know, he saw Fiji for its paradise that it is and said, you know what? This is a beautiful place. I'm going to get off here. Mm-hmm. Third thing, maybe he got off the ship thinking it's Argentina. The boat left and he's like, what do you mean this isn't Argentina? I guess I'm stuck here now. And um, <laughs> life assumed. You never know. Oh, funny. <laughs> but those so, are the three things. Yeah. So did he meet um, the, hmm. the grandmother then there? Yep. In- was okay. Yep. So that's where... Uh, you know, he met his, my grandmother, and, you know, then my father was born with his brothers and sisters. And then eventually, my father immigrated to England, where I was born, and then other relatives followed. And then he came to Canada. Well, we all did. We all came to my my immediate family, we came to Canada. And that's where this whole roundabout kind of way happened. But it just meant that we were always that distant or far away from India, and uh, prior to that trip in 2004, I had never been to India. Wow. Mm-hmm. I just, uh, yeah, I, I know exactly what you're, you're uh, saying. Mm-hmm. Half of my, my family's from Germany. And I, mm-hmm. I remember being in Germany and I'm from Minnesota where it's cold and snowy and, you know, you have all the seasons. And I was there in November and I remember distinctly going, wow, now I understand why they went to Minnesota because it looked just like Right. You know, where, where I was from. And uh, so I could see that affinity um, geographically, yeah. um, why they, they liked it there. So it, it mm-hmm. is a, a very interesting um, feeling. And, and I, yeah, I don't know where they're from similar, but you've inspired me like, maybe I just need to go back there. I, I yeah. did do some digging, um, you know, on paper uh, yeah. in, here in the United States, but kind of hit a, a brick wall. So yeah, um, yeah that, that going that uh on a trip and, and digging deeper is really, really a great idea. I think, uh, and I think you're right. Um, and I've done oral histories and my, uh, anthropological career. And I do agree with you. You know, I remember interviewing my 93 year old great grandmother and thinking, you know, what a a treasure, right? Because you, as people pass on, you do miss all of those um, details. We'll be back in a moment. Isla Mujeres is a Caribbean jewel off the coast of Cancun. Castellito del Caribe warmly invites you to enjoy our spectacular oceanfront villa located in the heart of El Centro and a short walk to Playa Norte, which is ranked one of the top 10 beaches in the world. 
with an ocean view of crystal clear turquoise waters overlooking both the Caribbean and Cancun city skyline, we offer a fabulous location for you to enjoy all the peace and tranquility you're looking for on vacation, while also taking in all the excitement the island has to offer, with activities either in walking distance or a golf cart day excursion away. Please visit castellitocaribe.com www.castellitocaribe.com We look forward to seeing you soon. Is it time to go? Are you starved for adventure and new experiences? Do you feel like you're slowly dying inside, just a little, day by day? Afraid of having to work forever, with never enough money to retire, or live the life you have always imagined. Life doesn't have to be that way. Instead, imagine waking up in paradise every day saying, pinch me, is this real? Walk away with your own custom roadmap to a dream life in paradise without breaking the bank at paradiseroadmap.com. Welcome back to the Overseas Life Redesign Podcast. Thank you so much for being here, and we invite you to subscribe if you like what you hear. Let's back up a little bit. I, I want to dive into your transitions a little bit. I um, saw that you had a corporate job and left that uh, to be able to do this focus. And then, of course, your earlier days, we were talking about um, getting out of college and getting a job as a as a janitor. Walk me through kind of that um, sure. part of your life and how you were able to say, ah, this isn't enough for me. What, what were some of the triggers and, and yeah. um, events that happened? I mean, I think what happens is, you know, oftentimes when I was in university, you know, you have this thought and idea that, uh, you know, I've got a degree in business and political science. I'm ready to take on the world now. I've been given all this knowledge. And I remember sitting there at graduation ceremony saying, okay, so who's going to be lucky to get me? And I started applying for jobs. I mean, back then there was no internet and email and all. You had to actually handwrite or type a letter, hand deliver it or mail it. Yep. And I remember sending off 12 letters and uh, saying, okay, and sitting back going like, okay, here we go. And two weeks later, a letter arrived and I opened it up. It was from one of the companies and it said, we don't have a job for you, but uh, thanks for applying and uh, good luck. I was like, okay, so you're not lucky. I'm going to send three more letters. And, you know, next thing you know, it really became like the tide. The more letters I sent out, the more letters came back. And what happened is I got 86 rejection letters from companies who said, you know, we don't have a job for you. Uh, Good luck. And uh, yeah. uh, Okay. See ya. And the 86 rejection letters, which I hold, it literally is the size of a brick, about as heavy as a brick. And Don, I don't know why I started collecting them when they started arriving. I mean, every single letter was a nail in my coffin of self-confidence, but yet I still kept it. And it made me realize not that who's lucky to get me. It was like, am I lucky to get a job? And it made me suddenly say, okay, I've got it. I didn't do this right. And eventually that job that as a janitor, as you mentioned, materialized. But when I went into that job, I, I, I don't know, I had a different focus on it instead of, okay, I'm a janitor. I went in and I pulled three life lessons 
that carries me to even who I am today. The first lesson, my father said, I don't care what you do. You make sure you do the best job possible. Your reputation's on the line. No floor cleaner than at the end of my shift and no rubbish bin left full. Second valuable lesson. You know, there were times I would get on the elevator with nurses, doctors, and administrators. I'd be ignored. Professionals and you're a janitor. We're in the elevator. They're talking and I'm just ignored. I know what this feels like. I will never treat people like this because everybody has something to contribute. Everyone has a story. This is why to date, it's been about 5,000 conversations I've had helping people in their journey because I'm willing to listen to them. And the third valuable lesson is to peel that onion skin away. Instead of looking at the obvious, I have a degree on my wall and I'm a janitor, I decided I'm going to, you know, deep dive into this and learn, you know, other sort of experiences and things. So I learned valuable lessons because I was in a learning mindset and that's carried me to who I am today. But what it made me realize is I was not ready and prepared. Now, the story gets better. I mean, I got that corporate job and I was doing the corporate job, but Don, I could do the job, but it just didn't fit me. It's like I was wearing an oversized suit and, you know, and I saw a room full of people in oversized suits. They were doing the job. Some were, some were brilliant at it, really enjoyed it. That, that suit fit them. It was a tailored suit. But for me, it was a 52 short. It just didn't fit. And I decided the moment I started thinking about, okay, let's think about this. Can I do this for the rest of my life? And I responded back, no. But I said, okay, but what is the next step? And then I started refocusing and repurposing. And I started looking at who am I as opposed to what I'm going to do. And in the moment I started doing that, clarity emerged because it suddenly told me I'm doing it wrong. So what was really interesting is I sat down and said, okay, but what's important? What am I not willing to compromise? And I came up with five critical things that I wasn't willing to compromise. And when I did that, all of a sudden I realized I am in the totally wrong job here. But what I've now done and said is, what are the five things, and this is what I help people on, you are not willing to compromise in life and career, not career, life and career. So that's why in the beginning, when I shared the five things that are really important in my life, okay, that's exactly where I can say, all of a sudden, clarity emerged, and I suddenly realized none of this that I was looking at, it was done all wrong. So now I help other people. And the way I do this, and it's through reflection and introspection, what I do is I now ask people to say, okay, what job have you got? And, okay, what do you like about it and don't like about it? Why? Courses that you've done. What do you like about the courses you did? What resonated? What did you enjoy? What did you not enjoy? But why? What do you like to do in your spare time? Why? And all of a sudden, when you start peeling away and allowing people to speak about that, you start coming up with these words. And now you can start seeing the clarity of what you're doing presently and does it line up with one, two, three, four, or even five? All I can share with you is that when you hit five out of five, don't have a job or career. Oh, you hit fulfillment. And I've hit fulfillment a, new, a number of times. Now there's a caution here. 
people are nervous about picking five things that resonate. And the reason they're nervous is because they think that they're stuck with those five words for the rest of their life. And what if I don't have the right words? No, no. You change the words at any time in your life as you have these experiences that resonate. And, you know, it's also, you can be creative with it, but also I'll give you an example. I'll ask people, and this happens many times, tell me something you're not willing to compromise. And people say family. Family is really important to me. And I said, okay, here's the why. Why is that important? And as they're sharing and explaining, I hear the words connectedness and relationships. I said, okay. Now, family or relationships and connectedness. Relationships and connectedness, is it important in your work environment? Oh, absolutely. When you were in school, was it important? Oh, for sure. In your spare time, social life, is that important? And they're like, oh, yeah, of course. So can we replace family with relationships and connectedness as one of your five core elements? And in anything you do, can that connect? And they were like, oh, I get it. That's how we do this. And we go through. But that's where, Don, all of a sudden, when you start doing that and the clarity that emerges, now you have something to balance it against. And now you can see if it fits or doesn't fit and how. Yeah. And, and I, I do something similar. I, I call them fundamental interests, mm, yeah. right? It's those non-negotiables that, oh, yeah. uh, you know, you, you just, you're not going to, you just say, no, I'm, I'm not going to um, mm-hmm. compromise on these. And, and that's, that's okay. It's actually a good thing, right? Yeah. Because that is uh, something, you know, you're going to track that and repel that, that which does not yeah. Uh, fit into that that um, diagram yeah. doesn't mean you don't compromise on some things, but yeah. those core values, yeah. if you will, those those core interests are. And um, don't if I may add, I mean it's also okay. So what? Like okay, so there are five things I'm not willing to compromise, and my job doesn't satisfy it. Okay, well you have to start having those deep discussions with yourself. Okay, mm-hmm. can you incorporate? maybe one or two of those five things that you're not willing to compromise. Now there's clarity. Can that be incorporated? Or could you talk to your, you know, senior manager to say, you know, this um, training piece is really important to me. I mean, I haven't done that. If I got some, you know, schooling, this is something now you're, now you're able to articulate more to your, you know, employer. Um, If they can't be instituted there, can you do it outside of the office as well? But, you know, where can you get engaged in that? And that's just an example, because some people may say, yeah, but you know what? It's great. I've got the five core elements, but doesn't resonate. Well, let's see how we can deep dive into something that's uh, that's going to make it resonate. Right. Well, in, in my case, you know, one of my uh, mantras is freedom. And mm. I quickly realized that being a practicing attorney um, was <laughs> diametrically opposed to that concept. Really, I mean, there just wasn't any way to slice it. So you move on, you know, then you get yeah. about what uh, you do want. But I want to ask you um, about that in connection with what we're seeing here post COVID. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this is happening in Canada as well, but, yeah. you know, in the United States, they talk about the great resignation and people just leaving their jobs. Yeah. Um, is, is that what's going on here? I, I have a hunch that, that it is. So that self-reflective period that people have gone through yeah. with extra time on their hands? Well, I think uh, yes and no. I mean, I think some people uh, haven't taken 
advantage of it. Some have, and then they're realizing, or they've decided I'm going to go do pursue some courses or some coaching. One of the things that you bring up that I, I'm absolutely delighted to share is one thing that happened with me is, I mean, teaching at university, just on a moment's notice, they said, okay, now we're going to go to online education. And for me, it wasn't a, a struggle or a huge challenge. I, I mean, I thrive in ambiguity and uncertainty. I mean, heck, you travel to India with a photograph. I mean, yeah, you better be accustomed to ambiguity and uncertainty. Um, but one thing it taught me was how can I maneuver through COVID and and uh, and you know thrive, not just survive. And I came up with an acronym that I've shared, and I basically said there's a need for us to care. And what CARE stands for is collaboration, adaptability, resilience, and empathy. Those are four words that I think are so important for us to embrace as individuals, teams, organizations, educational institutions, and nonprofits. Collaboration. What is it that you have in your storehouse of experiences? And what do other people have? And can we collaborate together to become and emerge stronger. Adaptability is this need to focus on, you know, shifting and changing. The narratives have changed in front of us, right before our eyes. There's a need for us to be adaptable. Resilience is realizing this is not a, you know, 100 meter dash. It's not over next week, next month. This is a marathon. How do we progress along and run this like a marathon? and build that resistance within us to say, uh, we can emerge out of this. And the last one is important, it's empathy. We've all gone through a lot. Some people have really um, suffered as a result and others have thrived, but nobody has you know, been immune to it. So empathy is just showing care and compassion to each other because you don't know what people are going through. And you know, I think if you can embrace that care principle of collaboration, adaptability, resilience, and empathy, you know, it's going to help you as an individual, which then helps the bigger society because you've embraced that. Absolutely. I love that. I, I think that's a, a great acronym that um, we, we could all mm-hmm. agree is we need much mm-hmm. more of all of those elements. Well, this has been wonderful. Um, the only thing we, we didn't touch on was, did, yes. did you spend very much time in England? So I was, I was born there. I left when I was four years old, but I've been back about 15, 20 times. And I did my master's there as well. So yeah. that's what I thought. I thought you yeah. had spent some time there. Tell me a little bit about that, that mm-hmm. piece of it, because, um, you know, you were really, like you said, Canadian and then Indian and then England. Yeah. You know, there's there's obviously some uh, similarities there, but but what was that experience like from a cultural standpoint? Yeah, I mean, England, England and Canada are very similar, and I mean, Vancouver and Victoria are sort of the more British parts of Canada. I mean, the thing about England is that the it, the the history is very rich there, and I know that whenever I go back, to me, it just when I walk off the plane, it's like a second home to me. And, you know, it's, it's one of those places where, you know, I, I just find I don't need to, you know, prepare myself, I just, I just get off the plane, I just show my passport. And uh, then I decide, okay, uh, I'm going to go see my aunt in Southampton, or I'm going to go see my friends in, uh, you know, London or Cambridge, it doesn't matter. So it's, uh, part of it is the fact that, you know, you, 
you, you find it's very easy for me to relate to that. Fiji, on the other hand, was interesting because I've spent, you know, like three month gaps, you know, summer vacations and things like that in Fiji. And, you know, what was really fascinating about it is Canada, you know, was always where, you know, you're a visible minority. Uh, England, you're a visible minority. But when the first time I landed in Fiji, I looked around and, I mean, back then it was like 48% of the population is native Fijian, 48% of the population is Indian Fijian, and about 2 to 3% are either Asian descent or Caucasian. And you're walking around going like, wait, there's a lot of people like me here, which I had never been accustomed to. And, you know, you, you learn to speak the language and, you know, the customs and the the food and everything. So it was always interesting because I, I, again, probably maybe because I'm a bit more adaptable that way is this need to, uh, you know, find that I was at home in, in uh, England, well, obviously Canada and Fiji felt like home as well. And the moment that that woman said you're home when she saw herself in the picture and later on, it's like, Oh, like it's interesting. And I mean, and Don, I mean, I've done a fair bit of traveling and I always like to share the fact that by traveling, it opens the world. It opens your eyes to people. And I mean, I've been to the Middle East numerous times, and it's always been interesting. The first time I went to the Middle East, people said, you're, you're, you're serious, you're going? And I said, yeah. And they said, well, you know how dangerous it is there. And I said, okay. Uh, and I was landing in Kuwait, which was next to Iraq, and Iraq's going through major upheaval back then. And I just remember, you know, people always saying, don't go, it's dangerous and this and that. And I went and I went to the entire region, the, the theater there. And I came back and I've been numerous times, but I remember the first time I came back, people said, so how dangerous was it? I said, oh my gosh, you're not going to believe how dangerous it was. And they're like, really? Like, what did you see? What was it like? Um, and I said, I tried crossing the road and it was so hard. And they're like, wait, what about the terrorism? What about the kidnappings? What about this? I said, Oh, that? No, no. I, I said, it's safer there than it is for me to walk around parts of Vancouver. Right. People are looking at me going like, are you kidding me? And I said, no, it's, it's, it's so safe. And uh, it's always interesting because I think what, what we have a perception and then when we experience it, it shakes that foundation. But Don, I will tell you, there is something very dangerous in the Middle East. And I did encounter it. And what it was is a conference I was speaking at finished on a Thursday. And I was leaving on a Saturday, but on uh, Friday, one of the conference organizers, this wonderful young woman said, I'm going to pick you up on Friday morning and I'm going to take you around Bahrain and show you around. And sure enough, she showed up Friday morning. Well, she kind of, she came up and I walked to the vehicle. She said, Sam, I'm sorry, our plans have changed. I said, oh, that's okay. I mean, if you have to go, don't worry. No, 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 no. She said, my mom says I have to bring you home for lunch. The dangerous part, if you ever come across a mother from either Bahrain, India, Fiji, um, anywhere in the world, who's cooked an entire meal, she's got an empty plate in front of you, and the smile, and a, and a spoon, Don, that's dangerous, because she's going to keep feeding you. And my recommendation to audience members here, if you're ever in a situation with a smiling mother across from you who wants to feed you, eat very slowly. <laughs> Great advice. Well, that's as dangerous as I got. Yeah. 
Well, and that that is true. And, and uh, you know, let's face it, I think uh, the, the media everywhere pretty much plays up this whole fear factor. And of course, yeah. we get that here in Mexico all of the time. Mm-hmm. Oh, is it dangerous? And yeah. I have a funny little graphic that, um, you know, is basically saying if you're not um, dealing drugs, looking for cartels, um, you know, you're probably safer than, you know, in your, your own country. <laughs> yeah. In the US. yeah. So yeah, uh, point well taken. Mm-hmm. Um, cute story. This has been just fabulous. Um, is there anything that I haven't asked you that um, you'd like to share in terms of, sure. um, you know, yeah. you've got so much experience here. I'd love to hear what you have. No, there's two things I want to leave your audience members with. The first one is obstacles are the necessary bricks on your road to success. Do not fear the obstacles. Embrace them. Learn from them and grow with them. But the obstacles are really necessary. Um, And I think people are fearful of them, but embrace them. The second one is my signature tagline, everyone's life is an autobiography. Make yours worth reading. We're living stories. You're writing chapters, verses, words. Your story is there to be shared. Never fear that uh, people aren't wanting to listen to your story. Uh, We all have stories to share. So live your story. Oh, I love that. I think that we might have found the title for the podcast there episode. <laughs> I always take it from my interviews and I've yet to be disappointed. We've, we've just had tremendous uh, titles come up. So um, this is great. Well, I will definitely uh, be getting your links and, and uh, to be able to share your, your books and, and your website. And I just uh, want to thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your experiences um, I know I got a lot out of it and I know my listeners will as well. So thanks so much, Sam. Well, thank you, Don. And just the opportunity to share and you're doing a huge service to people who want to share stories and to your listeners. I mean, they, they will get insights and things. So you are a wonderful conduit to that. Thanks so much. This episode of the Overseas Life Redesign podcast was brought to you by our sponsors. Thanks for tuning in. Did you love this episode of the Overseas Life Redesign podcast? Then please subscribe to our show and leave us a nice review. It's very much appreciated. We invite you to visit paradiseroadmap.com. Thanks for listening.